Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I've returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. My name is Cliff Duvinois, and today we are continuing our exploration of Detroit and what is going on down there. And we are fortunate to have the president and the CEO of the Detroit Historical Association with us. That is Alana Rue. Alana, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today, Cliff. Excellent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? Well, I am a Michigander through and through. I grew up in the Metro Detroit area in Bloomfield and spent my whole uh, life here in Michigan. I've never lived anywhere else. Spent a lot of time in Detroit growing up as all of my grandparents and a lot of family were there, but pretty much stayed in in the suburbs. I went away to school at Michigan State University with a dream of becoming the next Katie Couric or Jane Pauley and being a broadcast journalist. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's really what I, what I planned to do. I didn't think I would end up in the nonprofit sector, but once I graduated, I um, had my first, you know, entry-level job at uh, a local Detroit TV station and quickly learned that that was not going to be for me. But, but fortunately I had had the character building experience of having to pay for college myself. And I had gotten a great job in East Lansing, um, working for a company called phone bank systems, who back in the day before telemarketing was as awful as it is now, we did fundraising for nonprofit organizations. And so there's a great couple that, that owned that company and they gave me some great opportunities to work with clients like public TV and radio. And we raised money to to build the Michigan Opera House, you know, work to raise money for the Detroit Zoo, things like that. So when it didn't work out in broadcasting, I thought, well, maybe I'll fall back on that and see if there are any nonprofit jobs to be had. And I was um, fortunate enough shortly after that to answer a tiny ad in the newspaper. You remember like we used to do? Yes. For a fundraising assistant um, at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. And I ended up spending 21 years at the MS Society and, uh, you know, really was able to learn a lot about nonprofit management during that, that time. And it's sort of gone on from there. So I know you kind of mentioned this before getting into, getting into, you know, broadcasting and quickly realized that it was, you know, it wasn't from you. And and I think, you know, I'd like to go back and just talk about that really quick, because I think that a lot of times in life, people seem to think that they have to know exactly what it is that they have to do before they can move forward versus just trying something and then maybe realizing that they don't like it. So then you can at least cross that item off the list. No, that that's so true. I mean, especially when you get a d- degree in something. And I was one of those rare kids, I think even back then, who was like, I knew what I wanted to do. So it's kind of funny that I really didn't. And <laughs> so I had that singular path. I never changed my major. You know, I was going for that. Now, fortunately, you know, 30 years later, 30 plus years later, I think kids have a greater opportunity to have different internships and things like that. But that wasn't as common uh, back then in the 80s. And so... Yeah, I I was, you know, really fortunate, I think, to land when I did at an organization that still let me use those things I went to school for. And I do every day, you know, certainly in my in my role as a nonprofit leader. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think what do they say? Kids change their major five times now average in college. 
Yeah, it's something along those lines. And I and the last statistic that I read was that, you know, the, the average employee works at a company for two, maybe three years before they move on. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I've been fortunate. I've only worked a small handful of places. I actually worked at the MS Society twice. After my first stint there, I left and worked at Henry Ford Health System in their philanthropy department, which was a, a tremendous experience. And I, I learned a lot that I wouldn't have if I didn't leave. But then I ended up going back to MS to become the CEO um, in 2007. And, uh, and you know, so it's I've only worked four places in my 32-year career or something. Wow, that's something you don't hear a lot. I know. Where I am now is where I'll stay till I retire. Yeah, and you also bring up another good point too. And I, I just, I want to circle back on this. It was, it was an interview with Scott Adams, the the creator of Dilbert, and. Yeah, he was talking about this concept of skill stacking. So, you know, even if you're doing something that you may not be exactly crazy about, you know, take advantage of the opportunity to learn and get exposed to the new ideas and different ideas. Because really, when you move on to your next job or your next position, you don't know how that knowledge really is going to impact you going forward. That's, that is absolutely true. Yeah. And so many skills are transferable these days. Whenever, I mean, I'm sure like you do, like ask to talk to young people all the time about careers. And I think that the soft skills are what's most important these days is, you know, your ability to work with people. It's, it's everything is just relational. And regardless of what industry you're in, those things can transfer across the board. So what I want to do is I, I want to ask you a question because it sounds like from what you shared before, is you were you know born just outside of Detroit. We'll just say Detroit. So you were yep. you know, you were born there. You were raised there. You have stayed there. What is it about Detroit that you said you know you've just you're just basically made your life there? Right. Well, I think you know I think a lot of lifelong Metro Detroiters feel the same way. You know, I mean your roots are here, right? So that's that's probably the most important thing. Having family around. But, you know, especially in the last 15 years or so, I've just been so enamored with Detroit, the city, you know, the, the gritty city, the comeback city. And being part of that in my current role um, really kind of, you know, cemented that for me. But we were always a family that went downtown to the symphony or to the museums and things like that. And, uh, and so, you know, I... We travel a ton. I love to travel to go to different museums and other places, but this this will always be home. And I think it's just the the caliber of people. It's the Midwestern friendly values and the neighborly feel of all of it. And from from your perspective, because it's you have a very so all right. So I'm going to step back. Let me ask that question again. So the Detroit Historical Society, beyond the obvious, kind of talk to us about what the role is of the society in Detroit? Sure, sure. Well, first, real quick, Cliff, I'll tell you what we do. So my job is to oversee, on behalf of the city, our museums and to care for the artifacts um, of the city of Detroit. So we run the Detroit Historical Museum, which is on Woodward in Midtown. Kitty Corner from the DIA and next to the library there. We also run the Dawson Great Lakes Museum, which is on Belle Isle. That's our maritime museum. And then we care for almost 300,000 artifacts um, that are important to the city of Detroit. Whoa, 300,000? Yes. And they're stored in a warehouse at historic Fort Wayne. And we have an amazing collections and curatorial team out there that keeps all of that inventoried and now digitized so people can go online and, and enjoy, you know, for free, learning about the city of Detroit through the actual artifacts. So we run museums. We, we feel that we're all about education. 
So our role, our, our mission actually specifically is that we, detail, we tell Detroit stories and why they matter. And, you know, we all know that phrase that people who ignore history are bound to repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it's so true. History is remarkably important and it can be a powerful teacher. And so, you know, especially in times like this, our, our time to collect, um, you know, our work to collect and tell Detroit stories during this time is more important than ever. So we take these artifacts and use them to tell stories that not only educate school kids, you know, every third and fourth grader from the city of Detroit and many districts from around come to learn about the founding of Detroit in our Frontiers to Factories exhibits that starts in 1701 when the French arrived for beaver trading, essentially, and met with the Native Americans, and it all kind of began there. But, you know, through the story of the Motor City and all of that, the story of the building of industry, um, the story of the Underground Railroad, we also tell the story of the riots of 1967 and how important that was. So, you know, many compelling things. There's some serious stories. There's some really fun stories that we tell. Um, but, you know, we like to engage people. I think that every visit to Detroit should start with a visit to the Detroit Historical Museum so you have context for everything else that you'll experience. That's excellent. And I want to make sure that we that we absolutely circle back on that. The one of the key phrases that that you mentioned earlier, of course, is that if you don't if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. So I, I'm going to I share a quick story here with you. So. I left Michigan about 22 years ago. I moved to Southern California. And at that point in time, Detroit was not on anybody's list to go and visit. It had a very, very poor reputation, especially at a national level. For Detroit to get to that area, I mean, just, you know, just you and I just speculating here, mm -hmm. you know, what do you think were like maybe some of the things that happened in Detroit to, first of all, get it to that point? Certainly racial unrest is a huge part of the problems of Detroit and the subsequent economic um, issues. I think both of those things go hand in hand. Uh, you know, there was a significant riot in the 40s. So going back as far as then, uh, you know, when you think about the way Detroit was founded, we are the absolute, you know, we don't, we don't call it the melting pot, we call it the salad bowl, because people didn't all morph together, right? We're right. all different sorts of people from all around the world came here. And through the 1920s, um, you know, really grew, started to grow industry here. And as the different groups came together, racism was a constant issue. And the, you know, the divisiveness, a lot of which we're seeing again today. One of our most compelling exhibits is about the unrest in 1967. And it's called 67 Perspectives for a reason. And that's that, that people who were on the same street the same day had a very different perception and perspective about what happened. And I think that's typical for Detroit as a whole. You know, the have, have nots, um, the um, demise of neighborhoods like Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, which were, you know, wonderful um, places of culture and community for African-Americans and others, which were, you know, demolished to build freeways. It's been a constant, you know, economic and racial battle. So I think that, you know, really back through the 70s and 80s, I think that's probably the time frame that you're thinking about when it was really tough downtown. Yeah. When Coleman Young was mayor and, you know, a lot of good things were starting to happen then too. The Renaissance Center was built. 
And, uh, you know, things started to come back, a lot of architectural gems down there and different companies moving in. But it really hasn't been until, you know, the last 20 years or so, I think that the right investment has been made. But then, you know, I can say in the next breath, the same issues as wonderful as things are, are getting in some parts of the city, this, a lot of the same issues still exist. And for this kind of like, you know, just I'm going to throw this term out there for this rebirth of Detroit to get mm-hmm. it to where it is today. Cause I, every time I'm going to Detroit now, I, I just, I have it. I have an awesome time. I'm, I'm always having a great time when I'm there. I'm not, you know, it's just nice to shake off that old vision of Detroit and mm-hmm. being able to say, you know what, this really is, you know, the, the cultural center of Michigan. I'll make that statement. What is, what is some of those, what would you say would make maybe some of those either key decisions or key investments that were made that has really brought Detroit to where it is today? Sure. Well, you know, my favorite is the riverfront. We, we are close with the folks at the Riverfront Conservancy. And if folks have not been down there to see what was completely blighted before, you know, these abandoned industrial areas that you would not have wanted to go near is, is so incredibly revitalized right now. And then that's spread out into the neighborhoods around that area. And, you know, you can barely afford a house in some of those areas there. So the riverfront, I think, was huge. When the Super Bowl was coming into town, you know, if you recall that, there were, you know, a couple billion dollars worth of projects. And I believe that that helped at that time. And and you really can't diminish, you know, the support of organizations like the Downtown Development Authority and the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, you know, really finding the business owners to pull them together to revitalize these historic buildings. I mean, I think Detroit has some of the most beautiful historic buildings in in the country for sure. Yes. And I love seeing those shots from, uh, you mentioned before about Belle Isle. I love seeing those photographs of downtown Detroit. I just think, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, it's just, it's absolutely captivating. You mentioned this before about the DIA to Detroit Institute of Art. Was there a couple couple of months ago? And, you know, that whole area is just, you know, it's just beautiful. And I'm loving that museum. And it's it's really nice to be able to go and see, like, especially like on the wall, they have like a history of, you know, people that have made various donations and stuff. And it's really, to me anyways, very inspiring that even through you know the good times even through the bad times people's generosity in donating to Detroit believing in Detroit maybe not so much for what it was in that moment but what it could be yes exactly you know an, an interesting thing that I'm happy to include our listeners on is there's some there's an amazing project happening right now called Detroit Square and we're really happy to be part of it. Um, there are uh, 12 institutions in the area around of, of Midtown that include the Detroit Historical Museum, the Detroit Public Library, the, the DIA, the Michigan Science Center, the Charles H. Wright um, Museum of African American History, and then also there's the Scarab Club and the International Center and three universities, uh, Wayne State University, the University of Michigan, and CCS. Nice. And so we are working together with Midtown Detroit, Inc. And have, and this has been happening over the last three years or so, um, but they had an international design competition really to expand and and the outdoor spaces to encourage a real, you know, community feel 
and a kind of a brand for the cultural district where people would have, you know, there'd be a shared parking solution, uh, wayfinding, we would market events together and really activate the outdoor spaces um, between all of our institutions. There's a lot of green space there. So we have been so excited about what this could mean for us. Um, we're one of the only cities that has a you know, a cohesive, at least, you know, physically close group of museums and educational institutions that isn't officially partnering together. So it's such a cool opportunity. And this is something people are going to start to hear a lot about. And I invite everyone to key in on that and, and come down and visit all of the institutions when, when we're ready. This will be a long-term project. Sure thing. And it sounds like from what you're talking about there, that there really is a lot of collaboration that's going on between these big institutions. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think this is the first time it's really happened. There've been kind of one-off partnerships on things. I know when we did our exhibition on the 67 um, uprising, other institutions kind of got in on this, but this has brought all of us together in a great way with a lot of enthusiasm. Where do you think that this spirit of collaboration has come from? Well, I think there's a few things. One is is really the leadership of Sue Mosey, who heads Midtown Detroit, Inc., and, and of the city, city leadership who are interested in just maximizing what we have here. Uh, we have such amazing institutions here. You know, we have a, a, a world-class symphony and um, an opera house. And we have a historical museum and the Motown Museum and one of the best African-American museums in the world. And we're not co-marketing. And so this, the idea really came from the Detroit Institute of Arts, their CEO, um, Salvador Salor Pons is from Spain, and he was envisioning changing the outside of the DIA to be more of a plaza where people could gather. Interesting. So that's really where that idea started, just with that nugget. And then realizing when they looked out their front door, there were all of these other institutions. And so the organization of Midtown Detroit helped pull all of that together. And it really was much bigger, has become much bigger than I think Salvador ever imagined it would be. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty cool. And that actually explains a lot of what I saw when mm-hmm. when yeah. I was down there at the DIA. So yeah, it was just... You know, like I said, it's, you know, I'm, I'm carrying a perspective that's 20 years out of date. So, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to go down there, go to the DIA and kind of like look around and, be, and it's just like, I would have never envisioned this being in Detroit, but I'm glad it's here. Right. Well, I think, Cliff, that your story is, is is very you know typical of people that if you if you grew up around here or you were from out of town and you kind of heard what you heard about it you know they used to call detroit the murder capital of the world and yeah. that's what that's what's stuck in people's heads you know sort of this gangster kind of mentality and certainly things are not perfect downtown but there's a real effort made you know being made right now that's underway it's going to take a long time but we're certainly on the right path so i don't blame you at all i think it's very natural for you know that perception to have stuck in your head and and i'm happy and grateful that you invited me on to talk about it and i encourage everybody to just come down and check it out yeah and i'll often tell this to to people that I don't have a vested interest in being right. And I love to be proved wrong, you know, time and again, you know, I'm one of these weird people that I love. I love to challenge my perceptions. And this is one here, like I said, you know, just going down to Detroit after 20 years and just seeing what was going on. I was just, 
I was like, this is just cool, you know. So it's no problem for me at all to to jump in the car and make the make the ninety minute trek to Detroit and have an absolutely wonderful, wonderful day. Well, good. Well, next time you come down, I'd love to give you a tour of the historical museum too. Done. And hey, let's talk about that museum. Yeah. If, let- yeah. So uh, talk to me about like, you know, when was, when was the museum actually founded? Who actually had the idea for it? Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the, the Detroit Historical Society was actually founded in 1921. So we are about to celebrate our centennial. Awesome. And it was founded by really a group of, of local Detroiters, you know, um, this is typical of museums that it would be people with some wealth who had, you know, collected the history of their companies. Clarence Burton was really the first one that invited a group of people together at the newly opened Detroit Public Library to have a meeting um, in December of 1921 to talk about the founding of a historical society. Sometime in the next couple of years, they actually did create a museum. You know, up till then, they just sort of had their own papers and artifacts. The museum was in Barlam Tower, which is now called Cadillac Tower um, downtown. And is recently, it's being refurbished right now. But the museum was on the 23rd floor of Cadillac Tower and they would herald it as the, the highest museum in the world. And it was honestly just a couple of little suites that had, I've seen pictures, there was like a spinning wheel in there and you know, a lot of paper nice. documents that people could look through. But the Detroit Historical Museum was not built until 1951. So that's when we opened. And there have been several significant renovations, um, constant changes to exhibitions, you know, absolutely. And, you know, now we're at this point as we are pondering our centennial that we're really realizing that it's time to reimagine the Detroit Historical Museum for the next 100 years of visitors. So it's a pretty uh, weighty proposal. We feel a lot of responsibility around that. But, you know, certainly Detroit looks very different in its population and residents than it did when the museum was built in 1951. Yes. So we want to make that, you know, all of our exhibits are reflective of that. And then when Detroiters walk through, they see themselves reflected in our exhibits and in our stories. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point because as basically uh, a society, that is responsible for collecting more or less recording the -hmm. history. That is an awesome responsibility to make sure that you're not skewing what it is, just, just capturing what is going on and then letting people draw their own conclusions. Yeah. But also, you know, but, and making sure at the same time that you're telling both sides of the story so that and sometimes that requires telling stories that are hard to tell that some people might not want us to tell, but it it is really incumbent upon museums to do this. And I'll, um, quick story, Cliff, I was fortunate enough to be invited to Dubrovnik, Croatia last fall. Beautiful city. Uh, there was a an international competition for museums that we were invited to participate in based on the Detroit 67 exhibition. And so we, we actually came in second place in the world for that exhibit, which nice. was- so exciting, yes. And we were and we were in very good company. These were all museums that were already award-winning in their own countries. But I had this cool opportunity just about a year into the job to be able to meet museum CEOs from around the world. And everybody's dealing with the same thing. And and really it's around ensuring that all of the stories are told in the right way. 
And that requires sometimes editing what is in museums that, you know, was, you know, maybe appropriate at one time, but now, you know, there are stories that are missing. So this has really, you know, come to the forefront for us and we take it very seriously. So we work with almost a hundred different partners from around the city, um, from all different groups, all of the different ethnic groups that are represented and members of the community to help us determine going forward, what changes need to be made and what new exhibitions do we need to to present to people excellent and let's chat a little bit about some of the uh, you know some of the exhibits that are going on and uh, i'll kind of put you on the spot here but this is you know this is something that that i ask usually ask all my guests you know for somebody that's you know coming to detroit and they're like you know what i want to go check out the detroit historical museum talk to me about maybe three things that you yourself would either highly recommend that they take a look at when they come in, maybe three things that uh, people aren't looking at that they should look at. What what would be those three things? Boy, three is hard, but I will do my best. (laughs) So as far as our, so we have both signature exhibitions that are up all the time. And then we have changing exhibitions, which rotate all the time. So I would say the, the most popular exhibit that people remember from childhood, which is kind of untouchable in our space, is the Streets of Old Detroit. And this is in the lower level of the museum. And um, it tells the story of Detroit, you know, really from the beginning. It is, you kind of step into the past and you experience the city's transformation from a rural frontier town into the industrial age. And we have three quarter size storefronts that you can go into like a Sanders store and that kind of a thing. So, you you know, you get to experience that. So that's pretty magical. And uh, people tend to really remember that. And when we look online, you know, when people post reviews and stuff, there's a lot of pictures of the streets of old Detroit, for sure. You know, and, and also real popular is our, our America's Motor City exhibition. So when people think about Detroit, they think about cars. And we have a, a large uh, footprint dedicated to telling the story of the companies and the families that built Detroit. Um, we're actually in the next few months going to be launching an exhibit to celebrate um, 100 years of Fisher Body, working with the Fisher family and General Motors on that. And, uh, you know, so everyone in Detroit has been touched by the automotive industry. So that's, that's pretty cool. We actually have a body drop there from an old plant that was from the Clark Street assembly plant when it closed in 1987. And that's sort of the showpiece of that exhibition. And kids love that too. It's very, very cool. And the third thing I'm going to pick is our other museum, the Dawson Great Lakes Museum, which is right on the banks of the Detroit River. We have a new, just finished a two and a half million dollar outdoor enhancement project. We have the bow anchor from the Edmund Fitzgerald and tell the story of the maritime story of the Great Lakes and, and, you know, specifically the Detroit River. And it's a, it's a fabulous little museum that you shouldn't miss. Definitely, definitely. And those actually sound really cool. And I'm going to put those on my list. So when I come down there, you need to make sure that I see those. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So uh, Alana, if if somebody's listening to this and they want to, they want to follow what it is that uh, the Historical Society is doing, or maybe, you know, check out some of the things that you have online, where would be the best place for them to do that? Sure. Well, all of our events are always, everything's always on our website, which is DetroitHistorical.org. That's the the best place to contact us. We're also, you know, real easy to find on, you know, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And, uh, you know, we encourage people to, you know, also sign up to not only just, you know, get information about us, but to become a member. It's really reasonable. We actually have free memberships for residents of Detroit, Hamtramck and Highland Park. 
Nice. And that's another way. You know, also we have a really cool museum store with a lot of exclusive Detroit stuff that you can't get. And you can get to that website off of our main website as well. Excellent. And for our audience, we will have all those links in the show notes down below. Alana, it's been great having you on the podcast today. I love talking about Detroit. So thank you so much for for scratching my itch for me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Cliff. It's a great time and I look forward to seeing you downtown. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com email. I'll catch you in the next episode.